The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we get started on our study this evening, let's go ahead and pray. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1-9 if necessary. And then I'll open in prayer. During silent prayer, they'll probably turn the volume up a little bit because it's down out here. Okay? Try to figure that out when everybody's silent. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much for the opportunity and the freedom to gather together this evening to study your word, to focus on the eternal truths that you have revealed to us in Scripture that we might be constantly reminded that our life as a believer is one that is to be dependent upon you, that is to be an act, uh, an act of faith and trust on a moment-by-moment basis, that we are to learn to walk in dependence upon you in every moment of our life. Father, we pray that as we study this chapter and this section, that you will challenge us with the truths that are embedded here, and that we can come to a greater understanding of your work in history as well as in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, over the last three classes in Genesis, we've been going through summary sections. Two classes were review of Abraham. Last time was an overview and preview of Isaac. So now we're back to going verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, as we go through Genesis chapter 25, 19, and we come to the opening section of the Toledot or the genealogy of Isaac. Starting in verse 19, we read, This is the genealogy of Isaac. Literally, this should be translated. Now, this is what happens to Isaac and to his descendants. This section begins the explanation of how God continues the outworking of His promise to Abraham through Isaac and his descendants. We have to recognize that these are not simply interesting stories. They're not just bizarre stories. They're not just uh, myths or religious uh, parables. They are actual historical events. They are not biography as such. They best would be classified as a theologized history. And that's what the Old Testament is. It is God's viewpoint, His interpretation of the events of history to to demonstrate His plan and His purposes. They're an editorialized view of history from the divine viewpoint to demonstrate what God is doing as He's working out His promise from Genesis chapter 3.15 that He would provide a Savior. Genesis 3.15 is embedded within what we normally call the curse. And it is the last statement that God made to the serpent. But it is the first statement in the Bible that is related to 
God's plan of redemption, and therefore it is called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium, or the first mention of the good news, or the first mention of the gospel, where God said to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, which is a fatal wound to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel, indicating that there would be a temporary wounding of the seed of the woman. But this is the first introduction of the promise of a seed and the seed of the woman. The next significant mention of that seed, of course, comes in the Abrahamic covenant. And we've studied that many times, that the three key elements of the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, and blessing, that God promised a specific piece of real estate to Abraham and his descendants. And his descendants are all classified under that term, the seed. But specific interpretation of that, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, is that the seed would refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the third section of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing, God said that through Abraham, he would bless all of the, all of the human race. So that is, God was calling out Abraham for a specific purpose, and that through him he would bless all the nations. And this is done through the seed that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. And then it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross for our sins, paying the sin penalty, that every human being is blessed, and we are blessed with salvation, we're blessed with the spiritual life, and we're blessed with eternal life. Now, that seed promised to Abraham is expanded through his son, and then through his grandson. So we have Abraham, who was married to Sarah. Sarah was barren, and she finally gave birth when she was 90. She gives birth to the promised child, who is Isaac. And now Isaac is 40 years old. He's married. And we learn in verse 20 that he's 40 years old when he took uh, Rebekah as his wife. 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. And what we learn in this section is the human side of the acquisition of the blessing. On the human side, we learn how the human beings and all of their flaws and all their failures and all of their sin nature attempts to manipulate God and to manipulate the blessing try to get the blessing. But on the divine side, we discover that the blessing is guaranteed to Jacob in this opening prophecy that is given in verse 23. Now, before we go very far into this study, we have to recognize that one of the key principles we learn in this section is that God does not work in history apart from human volition and responsibility. God doesn't abrogate individual decision-making, volition, and responsibility. In His sovereignty, He oversees human decisions and responsibility to guide and direct human history along the course that he intends. And so as we approach this passage, and there's some very important issues that we have to address, we have to remember 
the principle that's laid down in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. There the Lord is speaking, and He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that we have to understand that there is a radical distinction between how the Creator operates, how He thinks, how God knows, how He operates in moving history along in terms of all of the various dimensions, specifically in terms of causation and how He works out His purposes while at the same time not, uh, not manipulating the decision-making or the decisions of mankind. So we have to understand that at the very core, when we address these, some of these complicated issues related to God's sovereignty and human responsibility, that we must not try to deal with God's decision-making process and the way He causes history to move forward in the same way that we view creaturely causation. And this is why I think there's such a, been such a debate over the centuries related to the sovereignty of God and the uh, volition of man, the responsibility of man, is because the sovereign causation of God is often tri- uh, understood and interpreted and, and explained in the same way that we explain human or creaturely causation. But these are two categorically different types of causation. And this is why we go to Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, that the Creator's way of doing things, His thinking, His knowledge, is completely different from ours. For example, His knowledge is exhaustive. There is nothing that God does not know. There is nothing that He's unaware of. There is no possibility that He's not uh, fully cognizant of. He knows everything immediately and intuitively. He never learns anything. He never acquires knowledge. He never wakes up one day and says, Ah, I have a new idea. He knows all things and all possibilities and all permutations immediately and intuitively. Whereas the creature learns everything. We learn it either through revelation or we learn it through empiricism or we learn it as a result of our own Uh, rational capacities, thinking things through and coming to logical conclusions. But we're always growing in knowledge, so our knowledge is not uh, exhaustive. It's finite. It's not not intuitive. We learn it through these various other means. So there's a categorical difference in our uh, knowledge, in our thinking, and in the way in which we work things out. So we have to understand that fundamental difference. And this just by way of introduction, because this opening section is a section that is picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 to be an illustration of that doctrine that everybody gets all wrapped around the axle over called election. And if we don't do proper work and thought and lay the groundwork ahead of time when we approach this, then you end up either ending, ending up in some sort of fatalism on the one hand, where God so controls every detail and every thought in human history that there's no room for human volition whatsoever and man just becomes another cog in the, in the machine. Or you end up at the other extreme where God is not God at all and everything that God does is simply in response to human decision making. 
both situations destroy the biblical view of God. And if we don't understand that God is categorically different and that we can't interpret God within our creaturely categories, then we end up in one of those two extremes. So that's just a little uh, inside, a little something to uh, tantalize you as we get ready to go into uh, Genesis chapter 25. As we approach this, we learn the background on Isaac, that he's 40 years old when he marries Rebekah, who is a cousin of his from the family line back in Padan Aram in Syria. This is descendants of, a, of Abra, uh, Abraham's father, Terah. This is a, the descendants of Nahor's line. And we are reminded that Rebekah was the sister of Laban. And all of this sort of prefigures, it foreshadows where we're going to go in this next section in this Toledot. Because as I pointed out last time, uh, Jacob will spend a lot of time with Laban and they'll be jockeying back and forth seeing who can outfox the other one. For about 20 years he's going to be back living in Syria with the, with the in-laws before he finally returns to the land. We come to the first couple of verses where the focus is on God's sovereignty in providing the next heir to the Abrahamic covenant. It is in response to Isaac's prayer. Now, we have to understand that by God's sovereignty, we emphasize the fact that God is the ruler of the universe. He is the creator. He is the ultimate authority. And how that sovereignty works in human history is the subject of a lot of debate, a lot of which we're not going to get into now. But God in his sovereignty and in his omnipotence is so great and so powerful that he is able to work in history and oversee the developments of human history in such a way that he brings about what he wants to bring about without violating human responsibility. The best analogy that I've ever been able to come up with to try to understand this is what happens in the process of the the inspiration of Scripture. That God takes someone like the Apostle Paul or uh, Isaiah in the Old Testament or Daniel, and through that individual, God is working. God the Holy Spirit is overseeing what they're writing in such a way that guarantees that what they wrote was free from error. Nevertheless, he allows their personality, their individual vocabulary, their background, their own uh, way of expression, their own uh, education or lack of education to still be evident within the, the writing so that you can study Peter's writings and you can study his vocabulary, his style, and how the sentence structure is. And we use computers today to break down, uh, for example, First Peter, and you can do all of this analysis on it and come up with an understanding of how Peter thought. And yet when you take that information and go to something that Paul wrote, you understand that Paul uses completely different vocabulary, different kinds of sentence structure, which reveals his education, one of the finest educations in the ancient world. So you see that their personalities, their individual decisions come through in those letters so that they're writing what they are choosing to write. Then at the same time, God the Holy Spirit is overseeing the process so that they're writing what God wants them to write and is guaranteeing it from error so that God does it without violating 
or destroying their individual personality or responsibility. Nevertheless, he brings about what he wants to accomplish. Now, if you take about 10 minutes and just reflect upon that, then your brain will be turned inside out because at this point what happens is our creaturely frame of reference cannot break through that barrier to the Creator's uh, infinite, omniscient, omnipotent way of doing things. And that's why we always approach to a certain point and after that we just have to trust what the Scripture says and sometimes hold certain things in, in tension. But we have to remember that, in my thinking, once we understand that God's way of doing it, it relates to his, his creatorship, and our way of doing things is creaturely, then it removes that tension. We'll get into this. So God is going to sovereignly provide the next heir to the Abrahamic covenant, but he does so in response to Isaac's prayer. He doesn't just provide the next child. He waits. Twenty years goes by, and Rebekah is barren. And finally, after twenty years, we read, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So the theme in this verse is her barrenness, and that God sovereignly has made her barren and kept her from having children. But in response to Isaac's prayer, God is going to bring life where there has been death. This is a key theme in Genesis. In Genesis 1-2, we see that the earth is a bleak, dark, barren, lifeless place. That the darkness covers the face of the earth. And there is tohu vabohu, or chaos, Upon the face of the earth, there's no life, there's no light. But throughout the scripture, we see this theme that God is the one who brings life, and he brings light where there is darkness and where there is death. This is one of the major themes at the introduction to the Gospel of John. John 1.3, John says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. This is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, there's, there's this integral connection in the scriptures between life and light. Light is truth. Light is related to uh, illumination, to the understanding of truth, as well as to righteousness. John 1, 5, and the light shines in the darkness, the light being the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation. Uh, something we remember at this time of year at Christmas. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Later in John 3, John writes that that men love the darkness rather than the light. This is the natural orientation of the sin nature. Verse 9, he goes on to develop the theme and says, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, that is, believed on him, believed that he was the Messiah in fulfillment of the Old Testament passages, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God to those who believe 
in His name. So we see that believing in His name and receiving Him are synonymous in John 1.12. This is what happens at salvation. And that at the time that you believe in Him, these people were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. See, the cause of your regeneration is not your will. Let me say that again. It's not your will. It's God's will. See, this is the sovereign creator side of the equation. We're born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. Not of blood refers to uh, their genetics. It's not because you're born a Jew. It's not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. Man exercises non-meritorious faith at salvation. That faith is directed towards the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is not meritorious. That means there's no merit in it. There's no value in it. Faith is something that anyone can do. God, then, is the one who brings life where there was no life. This is what we see in the dynamic of Genesis 25:21. It is God that brings life into the womb, not apart from the normal human uh, means of, of production and of fertility. But he does it in response to Isaac's prayer. So Isaac prays on the human side of the equation, and God in his sovereignty is the one who brings life into the womb. God was waiting for Abraham, I mean for Isaac, to demonstrate his faith dependence upon him before he began to fulfill the promise. This is a major theme that God has throughout the Old Testament in order to demonstrate the principle that he is the one who brings life where there is darkness. And this is the doctrine of the barren woman. And it's important to understand this as a framework for barrenness. Every now and then there are uh, women who cannot conceive and they are very concerned about fertility issues and, and that's fine. And I've often heard folks go back and they look at some of the things in the Old Testament without understanding the proper theological framework and they, that can certainly turn somebody's head inside out if they're struggling with uh, fertility issues. First point, we have to recognize that the first three barren women in Scripture are the three matriarchs of the new Hebrew people, the chosen race, is called out by God. It's not just any woman. These women that are mentioned in Scripture and whose uh, uh, infertility is highlighted are brought to our attention for a specific reason. There is a theological emphasis here. They are the three matriarchs of the Hebrew family. They are the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that's not coincidence, is it? That, that Abraham's wife Sarah and Isaac's wife Rebecca and Jacob's wife Rachel are unable to have children. There is something going on here other than just a natural biological problem. Their barrenness is designed to teach that the nation Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three have to go together, did not come into existence by chance. It wasn't simply something that was a product of human will. As John says in John 1, it's not the result of being born of the, the will of the flesh or the will of man, but it is something God was bringing into existence. God was calling out a new 
people through Abraham in response to the uh, breakdown in the human race at the Tower of Babel. And God is going to call out a brand new people that he is going to work through exclusively down through history, and that's the Jews. And this was laid down in Genesis chapter chapter 12 with the uh, initial call of Abraham. So the existence of the nation Israel doesn't come about as a result of chance, but as a result of a specific sovereign decision of God to work through a new people. So the call and the choice of Abraham back in Genesis 12 was not related to his individual salvation. Important principle. The call and the choice of Abraham is not related to his salvation, but to a new work that God is doing in history. He's calling out a new people through whom he's going to reveal his word and bring about uh, the, and bring the Savior into human history. Abraham was probably saved, justified by faith, much earlier. Now, the second thing we should note is that the significance of barrenness is not some sin on the part of any of these women. And you run into this now and then where somebody will say, well, you, you just can't have children, so there must be some sin in your life. You have to get anointed with oil. You find cra- crazy Christians who come up with all kinds of notions because they don't know how to properly interpret the Old Testament. It really puts a load of guilt on, on some women and some couples who are dealing with this. The significance of barrenness is not some sin on the part of this woman or in, any of these women. Uh, there were certainly many other barren women in the Scripture that are not mentioned. So we have to answer the question, why these? Why these? And there are only six that are mentioned in all of Scripture. Only six women in Scripture are singled out for being barren. The first is Sarah in Genesis 11.30. The second is Rebekah in Genesis 25.21, our passage. The third is Rachel in Genesis 29.31. Then we have the unnamed mother of Samson in Judges chapter 13. Then Hannah, the mother of Samuel, in 1 Samuel 1. Then, there's not another mention. That, the mother of Samuel, that's about 1070 B.C. So it's another uh, thousand years before you have another uh, imp- mention of a barren woman. And that will be Elizabeth, who will be the mother of John the Baptist. You notice anything significant about the children that each of these barren women have? They're foundational to something that God is doing in history. The first three are the mothers of the nation Israel, the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Then you have the mother of Samson, and Samson is the judge that doesn't deliver the nation. He is to be a Nazarite from birth, and from the time he's old enough to make decisions, he violates that Nazarite vow again and again and again. He is a picture of the complete decadence of the nation, their paganization during the time of the judges, and he die at the time of his death. He's blinded, and he takes out a bunch of Philistines, but he doesn't deliver the nation. At almost the same time in history, there is another barren woman, Hannah. Hannah and uh, the mother of Samson lit, are about the same age. And while God is working through one mother to bring about a judge who is a picture of the d- 
depravity and paganization of the nation. He's working through another mother to bring about the man who will be the last judge and also a prophet in Israel, and that is Samuel. And Samuel is born in 1 Samuel chapter 1 to Hannah, and it is through him that the, that the nation will be judged, and he is the one who will anoint Saul, the first king, and then David, the second king. And it's through David that the Philistines are finally uh, destroyed as a military power, and Israel has victory over them. So we see this theme running through these pregnancies that God is bringing life where there's been uh, spiritual death and barrenness. Then we have Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And again, there's a miraculous birth. And John is born, and he is the forerunner. He is a prophet who is to announce the birth and the coming, not the birth, but the coming, the arrival of the Messiah. Okay, the fourth point, the absence of barren women was also a to indicate something about Israel's spirituality according to the Mosaic Law in Exodus 23:26, that if they obeyed the law God promised there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land I will fulfill the number of your days now isn't that an interesting thing no miscarriages no barrenness there would be fertility that's one of the major themes in the Mosaic Law is that if Israel is obedient God brings life and productivity in all areas so, but there was also the warning that if there was disobedience, there would be uh, barren women and miscarriages in the land as an indication of their carnality. So the absence of barren women indicates Israel's spirituality and divine blessing. The presence of barren women in the Mosaic period indicated Israel's carnality and divine judgment. But that only applies from the time of the Mosaic law up to the time of Christ. It's not something that applies to the patriarchs. It wasn't in effect during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the barrenness of, of Sarah, Rachel, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel is not related to a sin issue. Thus, we come to a conclusion, point five. The barren womb in these women pictures the spiritual emptiness and lifelessness of mankind. That is... And all, all the way through these six women, the, their barrenness is a picture of the fact that mankind is spiritually dead. There is no life, there's no hope, he's in darkness. And only God can bring life where there is death. So point number six, in each case God miraculously brings forth life where there is death. It's a picture of regeneration. And only God can solve the problem of spiritual birth. And ultimately, each one of those is in some way a type of of what happens with Mary in the virgin conception and birth. Because where there was no means of production, God brought life, true life, into the world. And as John says, that life was the light of men. See, this could have been a Christmas message. We're just almost there. That's what it's all about, is that Jesus Christ is the life and the light of the world. So now you can explain to your children that when you have a, that Christmas tree, that the green on the Christmas tree, the evergreen, represents life, and the lights on the Christmas tree represent Jesus Christ as the light of the world. That's not where it came from, but it makes a good story. It's a good application. We can always co-opt it a little bit. I mean, the unbelieving pagans are always co-opting what 
the Bible says, we can at least co-opt a little paganism and introduce a little Christian symbolism. So that's the seventh point. The barren womb is a type of the virgin womb of Mary. There the solution to the barren womb is the new life and the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, back to our episode in Genesis 25. Note that both Isaac and Rebekah are going to pray. God responds to both. Principle, prayer is thus established as the means by which God chose to grant the promised blessing. Prayer is the means, it is a function of the faith dependency of man. We trust God and in our claiming of the promises that God has made to us, we go to Him in prayer. That's exactly what Isaac is doing, as we'll see when we get into uh, this chapter. Isaac is fully aware of the promise. Remember, this is the same Isaac that Abraham took up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him to God. So Abraham is fully aware of the promise. He's fully aware of the Abrahamic covenant. It's been reaffirmed to him. And now 20 years has gone by, and his wife is still barren. So he is going to God in prayer. And the word that is used here is a very specific word for prayer. It's the Hebrew word atar, which means not simply to pray, but it means to entreat. It's an intense form of prayer. In fact, the word is repeated twice Within this section, the New King James translates it, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea. The translators tried to pick up on the fact that this is repeated twice. You could translate it, Isaac entreated the Lord, and the Lord was entreated. It's an intense form of prayer in the Arabic cognate. The word means to slaughter for sacrifice. So it's not just the idea of praying. It's not just the idea that he went out and he prayed or he got down on his knees and prayed, but that there was a sacrifice that was associated with his prayer. Something was going on here to intensify uh, his, his prayer. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 10 describes worshipers or prayer warriors who are bringing sacrifices and offerings to God along with the prayer. So this pictures the fact that Isaac is coming to God with a sacrifice and a special plea that God would finally fulfill the promise that he has made to Abraham and to Isaac that the line would continue. And it's this that God has been waiting for because it's a demonstration of the fact that that Isaac has reached a level of spiritual maturity and he recognizes that he must be completely dependent upon the Lord. So he expresses his faith dependency upon God and it results in God opening Rebekah's womb so that she becomes pregnant. God once again brings life where there was no life. And this is to emphasize to the Jewish reader that God is the author of life in Israel, that Israel, that the nation, the people, did not just spring into existence like all the other tribes, all the other nations, but they were the specific result of God's miraculous activity in bringing life into a barren womb. Now we come to verse 22, and in verses 22 and 23, we see that, that there's a struggle that's going on inside the womb of, of, um, of Rebecca. And this is more than the standard uh, fetal movement. It is something that is extreme. 
that so much so that that she knows that something radical is going on inside of her, and so she is then uh, motivated to go to the Lord with an inquiry, with a question to find out just what in the world is taking place inside of her. And the result is that God answers her prayer, and He gives a divine interpretation of what's taking place inside the womb as a as a symbol of what will take place in the future between the descendants of these two sons. So in verse 25, we read that God will choose the recipient of the promises by His choice. This is God's choice as to who's going to be the recipient of the, the promised blessing. He is going to make a selection. This is what is known as election. It just basically means to make a choice. And God in His sovereignty is the Creator God and ruler of the universe has the right to select people for different functions and different roles. He does this all the time. He selected the Apostle Paul for a specific role in the body of Christ. He selected Peter for a specific role within the body of Christ. God is totally within His right as, as the sovereign to select different human beings to fulfill different roles in history. So we read in verse 22, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She sought a prophecy. She sought an oracle. Now the text doesn't tell us what she did or how she went about it or any of that. And you'll always find somebody who comes along and tries to uh, interpret what this was or what she did or how she went about it. The text doesn't say, and we're wrong to speculate. It just says that somehow, some way, she went to inquire of the Lord And the Lord answered her inquiry and said, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, I'm sure that a couple of things are true. Number one, this wasn't the first time that a woman had twins. Number two, it wasn't the first time that there was some sort of uh, extreme movement inside the womb. But what God is doing is causing this action to take place in her womb for the specific reason of being able to give this forecast, this prophecy, related to these two sons to show ahead of time that he has already made a decision as to who will be the, 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 in the line of the seed, who will be the recipient of the divine blessing, and who, who will receive that, and which one will not. It doesn't have anything to do with their individual justification. We're not talking about salvation in this passage. There's nothing here that talks about who's going to go to heaven and who's not going to go to heaven. There's no indication that he is uh, choosing one for a heavenly destiny and, and causing the other to, to uh, go to eternal damnation. That is not the context of Genesis chapter 25. It's not soteriological. It is the outworking of the Abrahamic plan. It's no different from God choosing Abraham to be the father of the Jewish race. Now that's not saying that there weren't any other believers in all of the human race at that time. We know there were. Melchizedek was a believer. There were other believers. But God was choosing Abraham as an individual through whom he was going to work his plans and purposes. It didn't have to do with Abraham's justification, only God's plan for Abraham in history. Same thing here with Jacob. 
So the principles are laid down that there will be a future contest, a future rivalry between the descendants of these two men. One will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And that's the principle. The normal human uh, procedure was that the eldest was in charge. The law of primogenitor, that the firstborn son was the one who received the double portion. He's the one who received the primary inheritance. He was the firstborn uh, chronologically, and the others received the lesser inheritance. But God reverses the human procedure with his procedure, and all the way through this, we see that the, that the older serves the younger. We have a situation where Ishmael's the older, but he serves the younger Isaac. And uh, Esau's the older, but he serves the younger Jacob. And Joseph is the older, but, is the younger, but his older brothers end up serving him, as indicated by his dream later on in uh, Genesis. So this becomes a principle that God works out in the future. Now, when uh, Rebecca comes to inquire of the Lord, we have a different word for her inquiry than what we had earlier with, with uh, Isaac's entreaty. This is the Hebrew word darash, and it means to seek with care, to inquire, to require something of somebody. It is a, a, a diligent effort to get information from God. And this leads to the core revelation that is at the very center of this narrative and which becomes a a crucial element in future passages. Uh, Malachi and Romans 9, Malachi Malachi 2, 1 through 5 and Romans 9, 11. Now that brings us to the whole issue of God's sovereign choice. We're not told that God made a we're not told why God made this choice, only that he did. And this brings up the doctrine of election. So I just want to go through. I'm not going to unscrew the inscrutable tonight. But I want to go through about 14 points to give you some things to think about related to the doctrine of election. Basic definition. Point number one, election means selection. It means a choice. And it depends on the subject of the verb as to who's making the choice. Just because God makes a choice doesn't mean there aren't factors that go into making the choice. He's not making just arbitrary, whimsical choices. He's not closing his eyes and saying, I'm going to pick you for this and you for that and you do this. That we must assume that God being a God of order is going to make decisions based on his knowledge, understanding of all things that are on the basis of his omniscience. He's not turning off his omniscience in the process of making decisions. But election as a word simply means selection, that God makes and enacts specific choices in human history. Second point, we have to recognize that there's a historical debate that goes on, and this is usually classified as a debate between Calvinists and Arminians. Now, Calvinists are those who follow uh, the theology of John Calvin, who was a French, later Swiss, reformer in Geneva. And he had a very well-developed theological system. 
that was then uh, further developed by some of his followers into a very rigid, tightly logical system that was articulated at the Synod of Dort that occurred about 1617 in the city of Dort in the Netherlands when there was a conflict with some of his uh, followers later on who uh, one of his uh, one of the theologians that was a Calvinist began to modify some of Calvin's teaching. This man's name was James Arminius. Not Armenians like uh, an ethnic group over in the uh, over in Turkey. These are Armenians. A R M I N I U S. James Arminius did held some different views, and so they they were challenged by the ruling power, theological powers that be in the theocratic state of the Netherlands, and so they had to come to a conference and they had a debate, and out of that debate. The Calvinists responded to the Arminians' theology with their five points. The Arminians were the first ones to come up with five points. And the, and the Calvinists came up with their five points. And these are often classified as the, as the two flowers of soteriology. The Calvinists have the tulip, and the Arminians have the daisy. See, the Calvinists believe in T is for total depravity. U is for unconditional election. Uh, Total depravity really is generally understood by Calvinists more along the lines of total inability. Man just can't do anything that has any merit with God. Therefore, God must unconditionally select who will be saved. He then dies only for those He selected, limited atonement then in order to make sure they believe there is irresistible grace, God is going to reveal the gospel to them and they will necessarily respond. And then P for perseverance, they will, if they're truly saved, they will necessarily persevere in living the Christian life. That's tulip, the Calvinist flower. The Arminian flower is a daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. One day you're saved, the next day you're not. Now, I believe that in between these two theological systems, and they are integrally related, they are tight logical systems. But Calvinistic theology also produces covenant theology. And I think there's an integral relationship between the presuppositions of strict uh, uh Calvinism and covenant theology. Now, the interesting thing is that many of the fathers of dispensationalism were also fairly Calvinistic. Men like John Nelson Darby, who was really the first person to systematize and articulate dispensationalism, was fairly Calvinistic. Schofield was. He was a Congregationalist minister. A Congregationalist denomination was an outgrowth of Calvinism. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer was what's called a four-point uh, Calvinist. A four-point Calvinist believes uh, TULIP uh, and P, the U for unconditional election, but the, a four-pointer doesn't believe in the L, the limited atonement. But, Ka- but Chafer really didn't believe in a lordship view of perseverance either, so you might have to say he's only a three-and-a-half-pointer. See, that's what happens as you start getting into these debates over 
how many points you are, whether you're a one-pointer, two-pointer, three-pointer, four-pointer, three-and-a-half-pointer, three-and-a-quarter-pointer, whatever it is. So uh, this is the historical debate. Now, in, within that historical debate, the you in TULIP, unconditional election, unconditional emphasizes that election is not conditioned on God's foreknowledge that certain ones will believe in Christ. I'm taking this definition from the Moody Handbook of Theology. Unconditional emphasizes that election is not conditioned on God's foreknowledge that certain ones will believe in Christ. In other words, God's foreknowledge, according to this, this view, is not the basis for his decision. He makes his decision, and that determines his foreknowledge. Election, therefore, according to the Calvinist view, is not conditioned on man's ability or response because that would be conditioning it upon, that would be saying that man's ability or his response is meritorious. This is the key thing. One day I finally started putting some of this together as, as I worked through this. I, pro- I probably knocked on the door of five-point Calvinism at one time in my life and if it were not for for a lot of the stuff that came out, a lot of the thinking that came out in the in the uh, Lordship Free Grace debate, uh, I probably wouldn't have come to understand this. Start backing away. The more I came to understand that if you hold this whole system together, you have to end up in Lordship salvation. Not all five point Calvinists have though. There is a, definitely a, a group there historically of men at different stages who haven't gone to a lordship view of the P, the perseverance. But that's, that's another story. The issue here is how you understand faith. In five-point superlapsarian Calvinism, faith is viewed as a gift of God. That's how they interpret Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, and they interpreted that as referring to faith. And that, not of yourselves, it, that is the faith, is the gift of God. So because you're totally uh, depraved and you have total inability, God gives you saving faith. This leads to the false view that there are different kinds of faith. You can have a faith in Christ that's not saving and a faith in Christ that is saving. You didn't know that, did you? That way, the only reason you can know if you've got the real kind of saving faith is to examine your life to see if there's fruit in keeping with repentance. And if you don't have the right kind of fruit, then you didn't have genuine saving faith. So it produces fruit inspectors. And everybody has to spend all their time examining the fruit in their life. And the most egregious example I've heard of this was several years ago when James Montgomery Boyce was dying. James Montgomery Boyce was a very faithful pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church. That was, for those of you who know anything about 20th century church history, that was Donald Gray Barnhouse's old church. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great Bible expositor in the early to middle part of the 20th century. And James Montgomery Boyce was extremely reformed, Calvinist, five-point Calvinist, wrote a number of commentaries, a number of things were published, and he was dying, and um, R.C. Sproul, who's another well-known, I think you can hear him on the radio here in Houston, R.C. Sproul was was another uh, well-known five-point Calvinist, and has now become a preterist. For those of you who want to plug it in to his eschatology, he now is a moderate preterist, which means that the uh, Sermon on the Mount and Revelation all happened already. That happened before 70 A.D. So that's where R.C. Sproul's going. Well, R.C. 
was having one of his uh, conferences at the same time that uh, uh, Dr. Boyce was dying. And he prayed every night, says, Dr. Boyce is dying. We have to pray that he will persevere and not turn against Christ before he dies so we'll know he's saved. Every night he prayed that at that conference. The last night he said Dr. Boyce went to be with the Lord and he never uh, turned his back on his Lord. So now we know he's saved. See, you don't know you're saved until you die. That's more like Roman Catholicism. It's a backdoor introduction of works into the system. And it is just as egregious as any kind of, of works, a front door works system of salvation. So all of this comes together. It's how you view faith. Faith must be viewed as being non-meritorious. The merit isn't in your belief. The merit isn't in your positive volition. The merit is in the cross. The merit is in the work of Christ on the cross. And just as there's no merit in Isaac praying to God or entreating God that Rebekah would become pregnant, God responds because Isaac is now at the place of positive volition and faith dependency on him that he wants before he fulfills the promise. So you have these two sides of an equation. You have the divine action in history functioning according to God's creator mentality and the human side, which emphasizes individual human action and responsibility but, function, but operates at a different level of causality. The unconditional part of unconditional election emphasizes that God alone initiates the process. And I think that's true. God is the one who initiated the process with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one who calls. But He doesn't do it in such a way that it abrogates or walks over human volition. Conditional election, which is the view of Arminian theology, and we are not Arminian, is a view that God foresaw who would believe and repent. He therefore elected those who would believe and repent to adoption. But in Arminian theology, faith is meritorious, just as it is in hyper-Calvinism and lordship salvation. It's meritorious. And so, as, as um, I believe this is a quote from Robert Louis Dabney, in his systematic theology, Robert Louis Dabney, incidentally, for those of you who are history buffs, Robert Louis Dabney was Thomas Jonathan Jackson, otherwise known as Stonewall Jackson's chief of staff. And he was one of the greatest theologians to come out of the Southern Presbyterian Church and founded the Austin Presbyterian Seminary and was also, part of the, I think, part of the founding fathers at the University of Texas. Now, you don't get upset, you Aggies. You know, there's a few Christians over there in Austin as well. But Robert, Robert Louis Dabney, in his book, in his Systematic Theology, writes concerning the Arminian view. He was a five-point Calvinist. Writes concerning the Ar- Arminian view. Those who God foresaw would believe and repent. He therefore elected to adoption. But all Arminians believe that an adopted believer may fall from grace. Now, See, he's, I, the reason I'm throwing this quote in is because whenever you get in a debate with a, with a strong Calvinist, they'll say, well, if you don't believe what we believe, you're an Arminian. Well, see, here's a Calvinist who say, says, if you believe in a uh, that God's election is based on foreseen faith, then uh, you're Arminian, and all Arminians believe that you can lose your salvation. So you can't have it both ways. I can't. 
See, we we believe in in total eternal security. We believe that once you've put your faith in Christ, you're saved because salvation, regeneration, justification is all dependent upon God. It's not dependent on any merit on us because our faith in Christ is non-meritorious. That's the key to understanding this. Now, I know some of you are out there saying, man, this is the toughest piece of steak I've ever had to cut through. Well, it is. And I'm just hitting the high points, things to think about. Third point, we have to recognize that the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign in history. That there is only one ultimate authority in the universe, and that's God. And God determines things according to His will. Man is not the ultimate cause in history. Your volition isn't the ultimate cause in history. God's is. Divine, fourth point, but we have to recognize that divine causation at the Creator level is not the same as causation at the human level. And that's where people get into this trap and, and they're, they're, they're comparing these two things and they're apples and oranges. They're not the same fruit. They're not both apples. They're not both oranges. They're not even both pomegranates. Fifth, the fact that no condition is mentioned in Scripture does not mean a condition does not exist. Now, there's a heavy thought for you. Just mull that one over while you're putting your head down on your pillow tonight. The Calvinist argues that salvation, that election is unconditional, meaning that there's no condition. There's no meritorious condition on man's part. But the fact that no condition is mentioned in Scripture does not mean that God does not make His decisions based upon certain knowledge and certain conditions. The term I like to use is the term unmerited. God's election is unmerited. It is not based on any merit that He sees in us. It's not based on the merit of positive volition because positive volition is non-meritorious. It's not based on the merit of of uh, faith because faith is non-meritorious. So it is based on his knowledge. It is not apart from knowledge. So just because the Bible doesn't clearly state what the factors were that went into God's selection process doesn't mean that there weren't factors that went into the selection process. The Bible just doesn't tell us what they were. God is, In other words, God is not just making arbitrary random decisions as to who he's going to elect and who he's not going to elect. So point six, whatever that condition is, it can't be based on something meritorious in the object of divine choice. He's not looking down the corridors of time and choosing people because they believe. Now that's really important because if you exegete, analyze the grammar of Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The Greek there is the preposition dia plus a genitive noun for pistis. Dia plus an accusative form of the noun pistis would be translated because of faith. But the genitive means it's through faith. And you're saved through faith, not because of faith. So you can't say God looks down the corridors of time and chooses you because of faith. If you do that, which is the Arminian view, you've just made faith meritorious. You said, that's the cause of your salvation. The cause of my salvation has got to be the love of God, which was shed abroad in our hearts through Christ Jesus. Seventh point. 
Divine selection, therefore, is not based on foreseen merit in the object of selection. It just can't be. It's based on factors in God's omniscience, but it's not based on foreseen merit. Eighth point, faith is non-meritorious. Saving faith is not based on the merit of the one believing, but on the merit of the object of faith. In other words, saving faith is not based on, is not meritorious in itself. It is the work of Christ that is meritorious. It's the object of faith. It's what you believe that has merit. Ninth point. Divine omniscience knows all that is knowable. It knows all the possible. It knows every permutation. It knows what would have happened if you hadn't have gone to Bible class tonight. What would have happened if you had gone to Bible class? What would have happened if you had taken another route instead of this route? It knows what would have happened if you had taken another route and avoided that wreck instead of taking the route you took and had that wreck. God knows all the possibilities. So He knows all that is knowable. Point ten. Divine omniscience, as I said earlier, is direct, complete, and intuitive. So His knowledge is radically different from our knowledge. From eternity past, God has known all that there is to know. His knowledge never increases. It never decreases. He never learns anything. He never forgets anything. He knows all that will be and all that could be. He knows all the actual and all the possible. He knows every possible permutation throughout all of history. And point, which means point 11, that God makes specific choices in history that are related to His knowledge. You only have two options. Either He makes decisions and selections based on His knowledge, or He makes them apart from His knowledge. If He makes them apart from His knowledge, that would seem to me to make Him irrational and make His choices arbitrary. If He makes them in relation to His knowledge, that doesn't mean that human decisions are the ultimate determiner in history. Because God chooses which of any hundreds of possible scenarios become actual. Thus, from the basis of His knowledge and all actual and possible events, God chooses to enact in history that which will bring about A, His greatest glory, and B, demonstrate his integrity and love to the fullest extent. And his choices do not abrogate human responsibility or decision-making. Thus, point number 12, God chooses in concordance with his knowledge, which includes knowledge of all possible decisions man could make. God does not make random choices or choices that are arbitrary. We're running out of time, so I'm just going to hit the next ones uh, very quickly. Point 13, because if you don't cover all the conclusions while we've got this far tonight, it'll take us weeks to recover all this. However, in revealing these choices to man, God does not reveal His rationale or the conditions for those decisions. He does not explain why He chose to work through one man, Abraham, and not another. He does not reveal why He chose to point out Job to Satan instead of another believer. He does not reveal why he chose to wait until 586 B.C. to allow Jerusalem to be sacked. Why not 587? Why didn't they go out in 605 when Nebuchadnezzar came in the first time? What about in 593? Why didn't God... God has a reason. He just doesn't give it to us. Point 14. Romans 9.11 is consistently cited. I did research through a number of Reformed theologians on election. They always go to Romans 9.11. 
as a passage to indicate how God chooses some to be saved and others to be lost. Romans 9.11 doesn't fit the context, though. Romans 9.11 says, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And then the next verse is a quote from Malachi 2.1. Let me read the next verse. I didn't get a slide for Romans 11, Romans 9.12. Uh, Romans 9.12 said, It was said to her, that is to Rebekah, The older shall serve the younger. Verse 13, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now in that context, when you have the juxtaposition of love and hate, that doesn't mean that God loved and liked Jacob and he hated and despised and disliked Esau. These are figures of speech for Isaac I chose and Esau I rejected. In terms of what? In terms of salvation or in terms of Israel's destiny? Well, we'll come back and look at this in more detail next time. I want to look at Romans 9 in the context of Paul's argument in Romans. Romans 9, though, has nothing to do with salvation. It is talking about how is the theme of Romans is answering the question of God's justice in history. When you get to Romans 9, after eight chapters defending the justice and the integrity of God, Paul answers the question, well, if all this is true, how can God be just and have integrity in relation to Israel? Because, he's re- because it looks like Israel is going out under divine discipline. How is that fair in light of the promises? And so what Romans chapter 9 is, is explaining is not justification, salvation, but how God is demonstrating his righteousness in the history of Israel. And this is a quote from Malachi 2, 1 through 5. We'll come back and look at that next time. But again, if you look at Malachi 2, 1 through 5, it's not talking about justification, salvation either. It's talking about God's choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as opposed to Esau as the line through which the seed will come. It's not talking about whether or not Esau and Jacob were chosen in relationship to regeneration, but where the line of the seed is going to go. Well, that will give you all something to think about over Christmas. You'll sit around the table while you're enjoying turkey and desserts, and you all can get in a discussion with your family and in-laws about divine election. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you'd help us to understand some of these things. And even though they're difficult, we need to think through them because they're part of your word and you have revealed these things to us. Father, we know ultimately that our salvation is not based on anything other than the work of Christ on the cross. And it is through faith in him that we have salvation. We pray that you would... Uh, challenge us with the things we've studied. We pray that as uh, we come through the week related to our observance of Christ's birth, that we would take advantage of opportunities to witness to those who need to hear the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.